Father, um, again, thank you for this time and this place that you've given us to gather together, to hear from you as we seek to glorify you in worship and be changed by you. Lord, we don't deserve to be here. We don't deserve the life that you've given us. Yet through your grace, your mercy, compassion, your patience, you have given us life. You have given us time. And for that, Father, we are, I am, forever grateful. I do ask, Lord, that you would glorify yourself here and now, that you would glorify yourself through the preaching of your word. And that as a result, Father, you would continue to sanctify children and to save many. Jesus, you are our everything. And it is because of you and it is for you that we are here. I ask now that you speak to us through your word according to your will for your glory, for our good. Amen. If you would... Turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 5. Today we're going to be looking at James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. James begins, if you will, the end of his letter with several series of exhortations, and this morning we're going to look at one of those. Beginning in verse 7 of chapter 5, he says, Therefore, be patient, brethren, till the coming of the Lord. Farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, till it gets the early and late rains, You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Recount those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Two points that I'm going to give you that we're going to look at this morning from this text, and it's an exhortation to patience, specifically an exhortation to patience amidst suffering, trials, and the second is examples of of patience. So in verses f- uh, 7, first part of 7, we'll say 7a 
And in verse 8 and 9, we'll see the exhortation to patience. And then in verses 7b and then verses 10 and 11, we'll consider the examples of patience. And in verse 7, James says, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now, the primary context of this passage is the previous passage. If you recall from, because it wasn't last month, it was the first Sunday in February, we considered the misuse of riches in verses 1 of chapter 5 through verses 6. The therefore in this passage, he says, therefore, be patient. Well, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, it links this passage to the previous passage. So specifically here, what James is addressing when he says, be patient, he's talking about being patient under the trials of being accused, of being abused, of being misused, and condemned by the wealthy for the purposes of their gain. Again, that's what we talked about last time, first, February, or first Sunday of this February, right? And if we consider James as a whole, right? Numerous occasion, he addresses trials that resulted by treatment or mistreatment of others or relational trials. When we go back to the very beginning of James, and I think it was chapter uh, 1, verse 2, he says, right, consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials, right? And we discussed why, going back, I don't even know how long ago it was, a year or more when we began James, we, we discussed why to consider it pure joy when we encounter trials, and it's for our sanctification that we encounter these various trials, and that's why we are to consider it pure joy. And then as we progress through James, right, he gives us numerous commands by exposing numerous sins, right, and most of that, most of those are as a result of various trials that was going on in the church at that time. In chapter 2, there was the issue of partiality. Right? Exposing the sin of partiality, right? Favoring the haves, having a disdain for the have-nots, right? So confronting that sin, exposing that sin, commanding us not to be partial, but in the same token, he's addressing those who are victims, if you will, of the partiality, those who are enduring that trial. Chapter 3, he discussed being cursed by others, talking about the tongue. With that same tongue, you bless God, but then yet you curse others. And again, there are those who are enduring that trial, have endured that trial, will endure those trials of what? Being cursed by others, having others speak poorly about you. Again, in chapter 3, he addresses selfish ambition and bitter jealousy and how that was causing strife and trouble, and trials among the believers in the church. Chapter 4, quarrels and conflicts, and unjust judging. Again, various trials. Trials specifically concerning what relationship, relationships with others. And then in chapter 5, as we saw last time, the abuse of wealth and power. Again, he commands us, right, to use what we have in such a way that honors and glorifies God by not taking advantage of others, but those who are being taken advantage of are 
enduring that trial. So again, the context of this, the, the primary context of this passage this morning as being patient while you endure trials concerning specifically relationships with others. Now, I understand that the specific circumstances of chapter 5 may or may not apply to us exactly how it did to the first century church, right? Most of us probably aren't being taken advantage of the wealthy or taken advantage of by the wealthy like they were, right? I mean, we might try to correlate that sometimes between our job or this or that, right? Understand that the specific circumstances don't apply. But what I want to do is I want to I rephrase, if you will, what James is saying by defining the word patience, right? Which brings the realm of applicability to all of us, okay? He says, be patient in bearing the offenses and injuries of others. In fact, that is patience. So the patience that James is talking about in chapter 7 is this. Patience is bearing the offenses and injuries of others. And understand that this is a command. It's an active imperative. So we are commanded as believers to bear the offenses and the injuries of others. This is those who aren't Christians, right? When non-believers are offending us and injuring us, we are to, as believers, bear those offenses and those injuries. Maybe when it's other believers who are doing that as well to us, we are to bear those injuries and those offenses. Now, as a side point, I want to I make a note, which brings it, I think, into the, the realm of applicability for all of us that we have to consider when we are being offended or injured by others, in, in our mind anyway. There are times when those offenses and those injuries are, are true and legitimate, actual. And there are other times when they might be just perceived or misperceived. We might feel as though someone has intentionally hurt us by what they have said what they've done, regardless of whether or not it is real or regardless of it is just perceived, James commands us to what? To be patient. He commands us to bear it. Going further in chapter 7, he says, I'm sorry, verse 7, he says, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And it's here that James introduces in part our source of patience. Till the coming, the parousia, the presence, speaking of the second coming of Christ, talking about his return, right? Because he is coming back. And James says, be patient until Christ returns. One, it's not forever, right? The trials that you are enduring now, presently, the trials that you will endure are not forever. You see, our anticipation of Christ's Christ's return should cause our trials to fade or should cause the significance, if you will, 
of those trials to fade because they are only temporary. And again, it is a command that James gives, right? Be patient, right? I'm not suggesting you to be patient, right? No, I'm commanding you to be patient. And this command is not foreign to James. We see it in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll wait just a moment for the train to pass. The train is always a reminder to me of God's sovereignty, right? The train passed at 10.34 this morning because God willed it to pass at that time. So anytime we're interrupted with the train, let's not be frustrated by it, but let's be reminded of God's sovereignty. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, Paul commands us to patience. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And Second Timothy. Chapter four, verse, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with what? With great patience and instruction. So in this passage, right, Paul is instructing Pastor Timothy, right, to do these things, to preach and to teach and to reprove and exhort and to do it with what? To do it with patience. He says, Timothy, as you pastor, right? He says, bear the offenses and the injuries of those you pastor. Just be patient with them. And we know that his instruction to pastor Timothy here, right? Is ultimately an instruction to all of us, right? Because the pastor is to what? Is to, is, to, is to model what? Living for those whom he cares for. It's not just a command to Timothy, to Randy, to myself, right? It's a command to model that for you, that in your lives, right, as believers, as you disciple, and as you witness, and as you minister, that you do it with what? With patience as well. Galatians chapter 5. Familiar with the fruit of the Spirit. So not only is patience a command, right? But it is to be evidence of salvation. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. We see it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, patience, bearing what? The offenses and the injuries of others. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he says, against such things there is no law. Patience should be evident in the lives of Christians. 
Not perfect patience, right? I mean, we understand that, right? There's a difference between being perfect and being characterized as being patient. There are times in my life when I absolutely lose patience, right? I think all of us could sit here and say, oh, I blew it. I blew it the other night. I was watching TV, and I completely blew my patience. It was gone. There was no patience, right? Sin, absolutely, right? Perfect patience, no, not in my life, right? But when one looks at your life, when one looks at my life as a believer, could they say that your life is characterized by patience? Again, not that he or she is perfectly patient, but the overall characteristic of your life when it comes to patience. One, as a believer, one should be able to look at you and say, yeah, her life is characterized as patience. His life is characterized with that patience. So what if there is no patience? Someone can look at your life or you can look at someone else's life and you say, that person is the most impatient person with other people that I've ever seen or I've ever met, right? There is no patience. Well, I submit to you, when there is no evidence of patience, then there is no evidence of salvation. I'm not saying that you or he or she or they are not a believer, but when there is no evidence of that fruit, then there is no evidence of salvation. So back in James chapter 7. Chapter 7. Ah. Verse 7 of chapter 5. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Considering our source, the source of patience, right, is this. He says they're trials. They're not forever. Christ is returning. In fact, he, the Lord, is our source of patience. Romans chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, starting in verse 1, sorry. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourselves. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself? that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and his tolerance and his patience, right? His bearing, God's bearing the offenses and the injuries of us. Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to what? To repentance. God is patient and has been patient with us, what, leading to what? Our repentance. We see it proclaimed in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. Verses 14 and 15. Therefore, beloved... Since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as what? As salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Paul 
consider God's patience with us for a moment, right? I mean, here on one side of the spectrum, we have holy God. And over here, we have sinful man. That's, that's us, right? That's all of us. In fact, in this sinful man category, that's every human being, right? From Adam all the way through the last human being, whoever that is, whenever that is, right? Falls under this category of sinful man, right? Has completely and totally violated, right? Transgressed God's law, right? Under God's law, right? Everyone is guilty, right? If we compare ourselves, right? If anyone compares themselves to God's law, right? The Ten Commandments, okay? Everyone has violated those commandments. There's not one who hasn't lied, right? There's not one who hasn't stolen, right? There's not one who hasn't placed something greater than God, right? Idolatry, right? Putting someone before God. Not one who hasn't committed murder, right? Maybe not physically, right? But Jesus said, what? If you hate your brother, then what? You're guilty of what? Murder in your heart because God looks at the heart, right? Not one who hasn't committed adultery. Again, maybe not physically, right? But Jesus said what? If you look after someone and you lust, then you're guilty of adultery with that individual in your heart because God judges the heart. One who hasn't blasphemed, right? Not just taking the name of God in vain by using it as a cuss word, right? But recall earlier in James, blaspheming God isn't just using his name as a swear word, right? But it's also proclaiming Christ over here and then denying him over here in how you live, right? Not one of us who hasn't coveted something or someone, not one of us who hasn't dishonored our mother and father. I don't know if that's all 10 or not. I tried to get them, right? But even in James, recall back in chapter, I don't remember what, but James said, even if you've broken one commandment, right? He said, you're guilty of breaking all of them. So there's not one individual who has ever lived, right? Now there is Jesus, but he's fully man and fully God, not including him, right? But there's not one individual who's ever lived from Adam forward, right? Who isn't guilty under God's law. And as an individual being guilty under God's law, because God is holy, right? We got holy God. We've got sinful man over here because there isn't one person who's not guilty under God's law. Everyone, Adam forward, deserves God's righteous wrath. God is holy and he is just And as a just judge, he has to punish lawbreakers. And justice, justice would be immediate death for the sinner. God would have been just. When Adam and Eve sinned, God would have been just to say, it's done, right? No more. I commanded you not to do this. You disobeyed me. You broke my law right? Because I am holy and you are not. Justice is going to be served immediately. That's it. Done. Death. Hell. Eternally. Now. God would have been just in doing that to Adam and Eve, right? God would be just in doing that for every person, to every person who has ever lived Adam and Eve forward. But he didn't do that. Not only is God just, right? We know that he's gracious. We know that he's compassionate. 
We know that he's merciful. We know that he's patient. That God, in bearing the offenses and the injury of Adam and Eve, of Cain and Abel, of Moses, of King David, of Nate, God was patient in bearing my offense, my injury towards him, their offense, your offenses and injuries towards him. So what did God do? We know what God did, right? God sent Christ, Jesus, the Christ, right? Fully God, fully man. God, the eternal son to earth to pay my penalty for my sin, your penalty for your sin, Adam, Eve, Moses, everyone's penalty for their, your, my, our sin. Jesus lived the, the life we couldn't live, yet commanded to live, right? Died the death that we deserve, yet ultimately we can't. I mean, you think about that for a minute. Jesus died the death that we deserve. You know, an eternity in hell doesn't satisfy God's wrath. Right? I mean, you understand that. Like, an eternity in hell cannot satisfy God's wrath. That's why hell is eternal, right? But Jesus died and immediately satisfied God's wrath. He did that because he was the spotless, perfect son of God. See, he died the death that we deserve, but ultimately couldn't die because he died in a way that we could never die right? Any unbeliever who dies and goes to hell can can, can compare their death and their suffering to Jesus's death and Jesus's suffering. Their suffering, right? The sinner in hell, his or her suffering pales in comparison to the suffering and the death of Christ because Christ was innocent. So God sent Jesus to live the life we couldn't live, yet we're commanded to live, to die the death that we deserve, but ultimately couldn't die, not like he did, right? And through repentance and faith, what? God doesn't just merely make salvation possible, right? In fact, accomplished salvation for all who would turn from their sin and turn to Christ in faith. That's patience, folks. It would have been just to end it with Adam and Eve. It would be just to end it with us now. But God in his patience, along with his grace and his mercy and his compassion and his justice, sent his son to save us. Let's look at Matthew chapter 18. Verses 21 through 35. Concerning forgiveness, Peter came and said to Jesus, he said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, 
do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents, that's like an insurmountable amount of money, was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. Right, that would be just. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of the slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, small amount. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what he was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father, will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. If God has been patient with us, leading to our forgiveness, how can we not be patient with others? How can we not show others the same patience, the same mercy, and the same compassion, forgiveness that God has shown us? How can we treat others in a way that is contrary to how God treated us? To do so is sin. It is sin. And here in part is why James commands us to what? Be patient. Bear the offenses and the injuries of others because God has bore your offenses. Your injuries. James chapter 5. Verse 8. Now we will get to 7b in our example section. I'm not skipping it. In verse 8 he says, He says, you too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. So again, gives the command to be patient, likens it to the farmer in the latter part of seven, which we'll look at in the examples of patience. It says, be patient. Again, command to be patient. And it says, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. To strengthen your hearts means to stand firm, to remain steadfast, unwaver, to hold the line. Thinking of the movie, um, not endorsing this movie, by the way, but I was thinking of the movie The Patriot, uh, Revolutionary War, right? Um, there's a scene in that movie when the American soldiers are on the front line and they're being charged 
with bayonets by the British soldiers. And their, their leader is, is commanding them, yelling to them to hold the line, to don't waver, to stand firm. The opposition is coming and they are about to spear you. And he's commanding them to stand firm amidst that fierce opposition. Stand firm. This is what James is telling us to do here, to stand firm. Now, the soldier, and in that movie, and I imagine in real life, right, the soldier does it in part because that's their duty. That's what they are to do. That's what soldiers do, right? We don't do it because it's our duty. We don't stand firm amidst these trials where patience is required because it's our duty. We stand firm because our hope is in Christ. He says, you two be patient. Strengthen your hearts. Stand firm. Remain steadfast. Why? For the coming of the Lord is near. First Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, what? Who is our hope? We stand firm. Right? We remain steadfast, unwaver. Why? Because Christ is our hope. And his return is what? His return is near. Just hope. To say that we have hope, right, in Christ, right? We are to be patient because our hope is in Christ. I think Hebrews chapter 11 defines hope for us. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hope is confident expectation. Be patient. Bear the offenses and the injuries of others as you face these various trials because our hope, because your hope, our hope is what? It's in Christ We are confidently expecting what? His return. Confidently looking forward to the day, right? Where sin is gone and all things are what? Made new. And in those days and in that day, if you are his, you will have your reward. For your reward is Christ and you will be in his presence. Again, he says, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. It's imminent. Now, it is imminent. You, you know that. I mean, do we, do we, do we, do we know that? Do we, do we really know that? Do we live in such a way that reflects our understanding that Christ's return is imminent? That's, that's any moment, right? The New Testament saints lived in such a way. They were commanded at least. And I know some of them did, right? And some of us do live in such a way that acknowledges the fact that Christ's return is imminent. Any moment, the next breath, he could be back. We see that in part, and took in, again in Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 23 through 25. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope 
without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see what the day drawing near. The day of what? The day of his return, because the day of his return is near. Let's live in such a way that reflects that, that acknowledges that. First Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment, sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Thinking back to James chapter 4, verse 14, right? When he says that our life is but what? It's just a vapor. It's just a mist. It's transitory. See, at any moment, at any moment, either Christ could return or we could be taken to him at any moment. It could happen in my next breath, your next breath. This afternoon, tonight, tomorrow, at any moment. And we are to live in such a way that reflects this reality because it is a reality. But I think sometimes we expect that life will go on, right? I mean, our lives as we want them to, right? And life will go on, right? And life will go on when we are called to him or he returns. Life will go on in such a real way that we can't even imagine, right? But, 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 but we live here now, typically, in such a way that expects our life to go on. I mean, how many of us, when, when we go to bed at night, expects to wake up in the morning? I think all of us. I think all of us expect that. I'm going to go to bed, and I'm going to wake up in the morning because I'm, I'm owed that. It's kind of, kind of how we live, right? But the truth is, is every night that we go to bed and we close our eyes, that could be, that could be it, this side of heaven. I know John Piper and Randy is, I've never heard John Piper say this, but I've heard Randy talk about John Piper waking up in the morning and, and, and opening up the curtains and saying, you know, he did it again. He did it again. Well, shouldn't we do that every morning that we wake up and we wake up in the morning and we go, wow, he did it again. I mean, I'm, I'm here. I'm, 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 he didn't return and, and he didn't call me to him. Now, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So believers, I, I suggest that, right, when we are taken to him or he returns, it is far gained than waking up in the morning here and now, right? But nonetheless, we should be amazed every day that we wake up while we still have life this side of heaven. See, we are to constantly live in light of these realities. We don't. But doing so changes everything. It does. We live in light of the reality that at any moment we're going to him or he's coming back. It changes many things concerning this passage, right? It would change how we respond to people who are offending us, who have hurt us, who are hurting us or who will hurt us. Verse 9 of chapter 5. It says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. I 
The other reality concerning Christ, concerning Christ's return is, is judgment. Right? Now, as, as believers, right, you should long for his return. Right? You should look for his return. I was, I was sitting in my office the other day, and I was thinking about this, right? I was thinking about him splitting the sky. Not that we're necessarily going to get to see that, right? But as I was looking out the window, I thought, wow, what would that look like? I want to see it, you know? Doesn't mean I'm going to get to, right? I mean, any of us will. Don't think we will. But what is it going to look like? I think about his, his return, you know? Man, I just want to be aware of it. Like, if Christ returns when we are still alive, right? I just, what is that moment and that instant going to be, be like? I mean, are we going to be aware of it? Or is it going to happen so quick and we're going to be transformed so quick that, that in this life we're not aware of it? And I think that's the case, right? I think if Christ were to return in five minutes or whatever and we're all still here and we're still alive, right? I think his return would be so fast and our, our transformation in that, without getting too far into his return in eschatology, but our transformation in that would be so, so instantaneous, right? That in this, these earthly bodies of sin and death, we would never realize it, right? But I, but I still long for it, and I still look forward to that moment. We should, and our hope is in that, right? However, another reality of Christ's return and the consummation of the end of the age is his judgment. James says, don't complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. He says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, complain, right? It means to groan. The word that, that James uses in the Greek means to groan. Ugh. It's an internal and unexpressed attitude towards others. It deals with bitterness and jealousy. So he boils it down. He boils this patience or this lack of patience down to an issue of the heart. So wait a minute, you mean we got to be patient with others, right? But it can't just be like external patience? You mean like internally, I've got to be patient with others? You mean no <clears throat> groaning? Because I think sometimes we do that, right? Externally, we're patient. I got it all under control. It's good. But internally, I'm bitter, maybe jealous, maybe resentful impatient, right? We know what? We know that God judges the heart. Now, I think specifically in this passage, James is dealing with an attitude towards other believers that may not be suffering, going through trials to the extent that we're going through, to the degree that we're going through. And in doing so, and groaning, and complaining, right, and being impatient, right, internally, we're actually judging others. That is, we're sinfully judging others. And here in verse 9, he reminds us, again, do not complain, which is judging, right, internally, brethren against one another. Again, he's, he's, now here he's specifically, again, addressing believers with believers, right? 
And he says, so you that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Reminds us that the one true judge is standing at the door, right? His return is imminent. He's just emphasized that in the last two passages, right? I mean, Jesus will judge, right? I mean, we as believers know that, that he will judge. Uh, uh, again, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 4.1 says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to what? Is to judge the living and the dead, the quick and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. If you are an unbeliever and you die as an unbeliever, that is, you have never repented from your sin, right? Turned from your sin and turned to Christ in faith, trusting in him alone. If you are an unbeliever and you die as an unbeliever, right, he will judge your sin and will punish accordingly. We see that in Revelation chapter 20. Chapter 20 of Revelation verses 11 to 15. I saw the great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the great white throne judgment concerning Christ's judgment against all who reject him. That's for believers, right? And this passage again, James is primarily, again, addressing believers, talking about believers not complaining against one another, being patient with one another. He reminds us that we too will be judged. Now, now first, Understand this, and this is important, okay? Maybe you've never thought of this. I I hope you have, but if not, this is important, right? If you are his, okay, your sin has already been judged in Christ. The believer's sin has already been judged in Christ. God will not punish you for your sin. It's been punished, right, in Christ. Now we know, we know this side of heaven, right, that God does discipline us, right? He does discipline us, right? And, 
and he disciplines us because he loves us, right? Because he wants to continue to sanctify us. He wants to continue to conform us into the image of his son, right? And so when God is disciplining you, right? If God is disciplining you, understand he's not judging you for your sin. That sin was dealt with on the cross. But now he's disciplining you because he loves you. And he wants you to be more and more like his son. So if you are saved, right, you do not have to fear the judgment of God, right? For he has already judged your sin in Christ, right? And when God looks upon you as a believer, right, he doesn't see your sin, does he? No, he doesn't. He doesn't see my sin when he looks upon me. He sees his son. He sees the righteousness of his son covering you, covering me. So we don't have to fear God's judgment against sin, but yet as believers, not this side of heaven, the other side of heaven, right? There is a judgment for believers. Now first, let's look at um, uh, 1 Peter 3.18. Again, just concerning the fact that our sin has been judged in Christ. First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So our sin, again, judged in Christ. As a believer, we no longer have to fear his judgment against our sin. And 1 Corinthians 3.10-15 through 15 speaks of the judgment that is to come concerning believers. Okay, again, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. The judgment to come concerning believers, right? God will, in that judgment, he will expose our work. He will expose our deeds, our actions, our lives, right? And he'll do so concerning or resulting, I guess, in the gain of reward and the loss of reward. Now, I don't, I don't really know what that exactly means. Right? I don't know what the reward entails for believers in heaven. Okay? 
I don't, I don't know. I don't understand. I've read different commentaries on it saying, you know, this, saying that. I, I don't know, right? But what I do know is when, when God judges me, right, when he examines the fruit of my life, I don't want to be the guy that just makes it through as though fire, right? I want to hear well done, right? No, you want to hear well done, good and faithful servant. I think in part that's the reward. I think that's part maybe of the reward. Again, I'm not going to be dogmatic on that, okay? I haven't done an exhaustive study on the, the, the judgment of believers and the rewards or lack thereof in, in heaven, right? But I, want to, but I, but I know that when, when I die and he judges me for his work, I do, I want to hear well done, good and faithful servant. Again, not for my sake, but for his glory. It's my desire. Now in verses 7b and 10 and 11, James gives us some practical examples of patience. We know that God is our source, right? He is our source of patience. We considered that just a few moments ago. And he is really the ultimate example of patience that leads us to patience, that should lead us to patience, However, let's admit it, it's, it's nice to have examples of like, like real people, right, who have gone through various trials, right, who have been persecuted, right, and yet they've endured through patience, right? It's good to have those examples, right? It's encouraging to have those examples. It's edifying to have those examples, and that's what James gives us here. Now, in verse 7b, He gives us, it's really more of an illustration, I think, than an example, but it still works and it fits. In 7b, he says, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. Now, Palestine, right, in in, in Jesus' day, I imagine from a, a meteorological standpoint, it's still the same as it is today, right? But Palestine in Jesus' day, right, November, right? Fall. I don't know where that fits in fall, right? But November is when they received the early rains. That was kind of their like spring, okay? Early spring, right? As far as like from a climatological standpoint, right? They got the early rains in November, right? Preparing the ground for, or preparing the soil for planting. And, and that's when the farmers planted, right? And then they harvested in what we would call spring, which would have been March, April, when the late rains came, this time frame requires patience, right? Now, they understood that, right? Because it was a mainly agrarian, excuse me, agrarian culture, right? I know some of us in here garden. I like the garden. I'm not any good at it, but I enjoy it. And I know others in here do the same thing, right? And, and, and some did some greenhouse stuff and others do landscape stuff, right? We understand patience when it comes to planting and waiting for the vegetables to grow so we can harvest the vegetables or the grass to, to germinate so then it'll turn green and we can have a pretty looking yard or whatever the case, right? I mean, we understand the patience that's required in that, right? So he gives us as an example, as an illustration, right? And he says, as the farmer is patient and waiting for his crops to return, so we too are to be patient. But now in this case, he was talking about being patient, looking for the return of Christ, 
You see, our patience for people doesn't produce in us a patience for Christ's return. And we've talked about looking towards his return, right? It's, it's only temporary. Right? We look towards his return. The end of all is near, right? There is going to be a day when he makes all things new and, and everything is set right, okay? So the trial that you're in is only temporary, right? We look to his return in hope, right? Because it's only him through him, by him, because of him, that, that we can endure these trials with patience, right? But our patience for people doesn't produce in us a patience for Christ's return, but our hope for his return, our longing for his return, our patience for his return should produce in us a patience towards others. As we endure or as we bear their offenses, their injuries. Gives us another example in verse 10. And he says, as an example, it's clear, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience. He says, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. You know, the prophets in their day were, were often hated, right? They were persecuted, they were rebelled against, they were put to death. That's easy for us to look back at the prophets and be like, they were heroes, right? I mean, they were God's men who came and spoke on his behalf, right? To lead his people into righteousness, right? They were heroes, not to the people, right? That lived around them when they lived. They were hated. They were persecuted. They were murdered. We see a testimony of this. I'm going to look, we're going to look at several scripture verses here, some that just give a general testimony to the fact that the prophets were hated. And then we're going to look at a few prophets specifically, just as samples. Let's start in 2 Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 36. Verses 15 and 16 testify to the fact that the prophets were hated, persecuted, they suffered. It says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers. Why? Because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets. So the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. We see it proclaimed in Matthew. Jesus gives testimony to this. Matthew chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. He says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Part, this is what James is addressing here, right? Be patient with those people. Jesus says in verse 12, he says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Stephen gives testimony to this, right? He's being stoned, right? He's, he's, he's awesome. I mean, the, it's not, I mean, he's being stoned, not quite so awesome, right? But the gospel that he was proclaiming as he was being stoned was just fantastic. And how God used his testimony was absolutely incredible. Um, but we see in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 and 52, right? He proclaims the same truths concerning the prophets. So Acts, again, 7, 51 and 52. It says, You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing what? Just as your fathers did. It says, Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. And then in Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 32 through 38. What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Concerning the prophets, they were hated, they were despised, they were persecuted, and they were murdered. James says, look to their example. Look to their example of endurance, patience. Now, let's consider for a moment Jeremiah. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 20. Twenty verse two. This pasture had Jeremiah the prophet beaten, put him in the stocks that were at the upper Benjamin gate, which was by the house of the Lord. And then in chapter 37 of Jeremiah. Verse 4 and then 15 through 21 says, Now Jeremiah was still coming and going among the people, for they had not yet what put him in prison. And then in verse 15, it says, Then the officials were angry at Jeremiah and beat him. And they put him in jail in the house of Jonathan the scribe, which they had made into the prison. For Jeremiah had come into the dungeon, that is the vaulted cell, and Jeremiah stayed there many days. Now King Zedekiah sent and took him out, and in his 
palace, the king secretly asked him and said, is there a word from the Lord? Jeremiah said, there is. And then he said, you will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. Moreover, Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, in what way have I sinned against you or against your servants or against this people that you have put me in prison? Where then are your prophets who promised to you saying, the king of Babylon will not come against you or against this land? But now please listen. Oh my Lord, the king, please let my petition come before you and do not make me return to the house of Jonathan the scribe that I may not die there. Then King Zedekiah gave commandment and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guardhouse, gave him a loaf of bread daily from the baker's street until all the bread in the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the court of the guardhouse. Back to Hebrews 11 for just a moment. Eleven thirty-seven. It says they were stoned and they were sawn in two concerning the prophets. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. Now, extra biblical literature, right? Church history. It doesn't say explicitly in Scripture, but extra biblical outside of Scripture, right? Church history, though, testifies to the fact that both Jeremiah, great prophet Isaiah, were killed in these manners. That they were stoned that they were sawn in two. Let's consider one more prophet. I had a list for the sake of time. I won't look at them. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. (coughs) (coughs) I think sometimes, maybe it's just me, but think sometimes we fail to recognize John the Baptist, or we don't categorize maybe John the Baptist as a prophet as we categorize maybe Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and the other Old Testament prophets, right? He was, right? And the greatest of prophets, John the Baptist, who proclaimed the, the coming of, of Christ, like in his time, right? Baptized the Messiah, Matthew chapter 14, verses 6 through 12. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. He was grieved. Although he was grieved, The king commanded it to be given because of his oaths, because of his dinner guests. So he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. She brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus. Verse 11, he says, James 5.11, he says, We count those blessed who endured. Specifically, referring to the prophets here, he says we count them blessed because they endured through patience, the offenses, the injuries of others. Did it for Christ's sake. He gives another example. He says, 
You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Real quick, right? Most of us know Job, right? A blameless and upright man who feared God and who turned away from evil. Satan went to God and said, God, you consider Job, right? I think if, if you allow me, summarizing here, if you allow me to test him, Satan saying to God, you'll find that Job doesn't fear you and he doesn't turn from evil, that he's not the man God that you think he is. So God says, yes, allow Satan to test Job. Job was a wealthy man, had a big family, lots of livestock and stuff, right? Job got sick and he lost his stuff. His wife turned on him and said, Job, just curse God and die. If you recall from Job, right, three of Job's friends turn on Job as well and they accuse him of sin. They say, Job, God is punishing you because of sin. And Job says, no. He's not punishing me because of sin, right? Yes, Job, God is punishing you because of sin, right? And this, the bulk of Job goes back and forth between his three friends accusing him of sin and accusing God of punishment too, right? So not only were the three friends accusing Job, they were also accusing God, okay? So what does Job do? He stands firm, defends God, defends himself, right? Now Job does sin though, right? I think the sin of Job is this. It's self-righteousness, okay? He, he defended himself so much to his three friends that he was an upright man. He began to think of himself as being self-righteous. And, and, and getting to that point, he then questioned the sovereignty of God. And that was Job's sin, right? He didn't turn on God like Satan had said he would turn on God, but he did, he did sin. We look at the overall characteristic of Job's life, right? And again, it's not characterized by this evil man who was living in complete unrighteousness, right? Perfect? No. Characterized, right, by uprightness? Yes, right? And after Job's uh, uh, sinned, his, a true friend came to Job. A young man came to him and rebuked him. And then God <laughs> rebuked him. And Job repented. And God restored him. See, there is hope in God and in his purposes. And we see it in Job's life, right? It's true for us in our lives as we patiently endure these trials. Now, I'm going to end on this. There's something else that James is pulling out in chapter, I'm sorry, not chapter, but verse 11 of chapter 5. And I want to read it again, and it's not just the example of Job. He says, We count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Those who endure are blessed. I know he's talking specifically about the prophets, right? The first part of verse 11, but it's true for us. Those who patiently endure the various trials of life, specifically in this passage, right? 
bearing the offenses of injuries of others. Those who endure are blessed. In fact, I believe that these trials, right, are actually a means of God's grace in our lives. Think back to, again, chapter 1, verse 2, right? Consider it pure joy, right, when you encounter various trials, right? And again, various just means various, right? The various trials of life. And going all the way back to that sermon, why, why do we count it pure joy, right? Because of the work that God does in and through our lives as we endure those trials. And that work is our sanctification, right? Conforming us more and more like Christ as we turn more and more from sin and stuff in this world. And in this passage, he says, we count those blessed who endured and that the Lord is full of what? Compassion and mercy. You see, it's, it's in these trials, right? It's in the various trials of life. And I'm going to just broaden the scope here from just the trial of, of uh, bearing uh, offenses of, and, and injuries of others, right? I'm going to broaden it here, right, to the various trials. It's when we endure the various trials trials of life that God's compassion and mercy is made more real and made more known to us. You think, I'm sure you can do it, I can do it, I can think of trials in my life, right? The low spots, right? And I can think of enduring through those low spots and looking back and I can say, you know what? It's at those times that I felt his compassion, that I saw his mercy and his grace in great clarity. More so than in the good times. See, it's these trials that God uses as a means of grace and mercy and compassion to draw us closer to him as he continues to conform us more and more like his son. I'm going to look at one more verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 7 through 10. Concerning one of the Apostle Paul's trials. He said, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me, he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with trials is what he's explaining here, with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, 
for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Father, I pray first that you would grant what you command. But you do command us to patience. You command us to bearing <laughs> defenses of others, Lord. So I ask, Father, that you would, in fact, grant that to us as we endure these trials in our lives. Lord, that you would grant us that patience and you, you would do so as we look forward, Jesus, to your return and as we hope in your return and as we reflect upon the great patience that you have demonstrated to us through your life, through your salvation. God, Apostle Paul proclaimed that when he was weak, he was strong. That when he endured these various trials, the low parts, many low parts of his life, he was strong because it was through these trials that he was drawn closer and closer to you. That he was conformed more and more, Lord, to your image for your glory and for his good. And so I pray, God, that you would do the same for us. That through these various trials in life that we have been through, Lord, that we're going through, and that we know we will go through, God, I pray that you would continue to conform us to Christ. That we would hate our sin more and more, moment by moment, and that we would continue to turn from our sin and, and, and this world and the, the wickedness of this world, moment by moment, day by day. And as we turn from that, God, strengthen us to turn more and more to Christ, to be more and more like you, Jesus. And God, may it be our desire to do that first for your glory because we we want to see you glorified we should want to see you glorified you alone are worthy of all glory and all honor and all praise but yet god i know that that as you do this work in us right we gain we gain and we don't deserve that but yet through your grace and your mercy and compassion, you allow us to gain as a result of your glory. And I am absolutely amazed by that and thankful for that. We do love you, Lord. I, I love you and I praise you. I thank you for your word. <laughs> I thank you for hmm, your servant, James, and for, for using him <laughs> to give us this letter today, your word today. Use it to glorify yourself. Use it for our good, for the salvation of the lost. 
Jesus. All of this, I ask for you, for your sake, for your glory. And it's because of you that we can even do that. Amen.